Well, this is Alex Grant. Today's episode is brought to you by my new comic, Journey into Mexico, with Latin American artist Sebastián Guidobono, following the adventures of young T-Hax Tabaris, who wields the power of... El Fuego! During a very politically hot time in 1830s Mexico. Available in both English and Spanish on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Comixology, and other book outlets such as IndiePlanet.com. Cheers, and let's get started. Welcome again to the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Grand and Jim Thompson. Today we are concluding a riveting interview with Mr. Paul Levitz, former DC Comics president, publisher, editor, and writer. Let's continue. As you mentioned him, what was your impression of Julius Schwartz? He was there for decades, obviously. Were you fond of him? Did you like him? Uh, what's your impression of Julius Schwartz? I like Julia a lot. I learned an awful lot about organizational methodology for comics from Julie, record keeping, administering, keeping things on deadline. He was terrific at that side of the job. When he finally asked me to write for him around 78, that's the first time I felt like I really was a professional writer. This oh, cool. Getting assignments from, from Joe or from Jerry, you know, I was, I was there in the middle of it. I was in a privileged position, which I either used or abused. We can <laughs> probably both at different points. But Julie, Julie offering me an assignment was a real editor saying, you're worthy. Take yeah, right. And that was DC Comics Presents, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did a few of those. You know, Julie's role in making the comics more intelligent, more sophisticated in the early 60s, the whole creation of the second heroic age, if you will, the Silver Age, mm -hmm. is a tremendous contribution to the field. Right. He stayed a long time, maybe the last few years, he wasn't as in tune with the market as he was earlier on. Other challenges of age crept up. And there are things that make his legacy more complicated from those years. Yes. But, you know, if, if he had done nothing but the work he did from 1956 to 1964, he would be one of the three or four most important editors comics ever had. Yeah, of all time. Industry changes around this time. So Jim Shooter uh, became editor-in-chief in 78 in Marvel, and there was some friction he had. And so people like Roy Thomas, Gene Colan moved over to D.C. Jim Starlin also moved over to D.C. when this was happening. What was your impression just of down the street? Oh, what's going on over there that all these people are coming over? And did they express their impression of why they left to you? What was your impression of, of what was going on with that shift? That would be 80-81 at this point. Yeah, because from 76 to 80, I have a regular poker game going. Oh. And it includes Jim, Len Wein, Marv Wolfman, Denny O'Neill, occasionally Chris Claremont, occasionally Frank Miller, Marty Pasco, Jack Abel, Steve Mitchell, Roger Slifer. So there was a lot of cross-company camaraderie. camaraderie, friendly relationship. Jim's one of the best editors of comics, probably one of the three best editors of my generation. I'd argue he's a better editor than I was. He had, I think, two challenges. One, the editor-in-chief title is intrinsically a two-edged sword for a talented person. 
when you take responsibility for a whole line of the size Marvel was or the DC was, if you approach the editor-in-chief role as saying, I am responsible for each and every one of these books, I will make it right, that's enormously draining. And if you're good enough to do it well, I think it either damages you emotionally or damages you physically. Mm -hmm. Shelley Mayer, who did that back on the All-American line back in the 40s, who I think was an extraordinary editor as well, pretty much destroyed his health in the process. Oh, wow. That's why a major part of why he retired from that as a very young man to return to being a, a cartoonist, which is what he loved for the rest of his life. Mm. Jim, I think, damaged an awful lot of his emotional relationships with a lot of people. And I think the other problem with it is if you're that good as an editor-in-chief and you start fixing everything that's around you, your subordinate editors begin to create to your desires and to your needs or trying to double think, what will the boss think of this? Ah. And it was the reason I never took the editor-in-chief title when I had the opportunities to. I think I would have been vulnerable to exactly the same thing. Jeanette never had that kind of problem because she was not a comic book writer or editor at heart. So she never took possession in the same way. Her view of being editor-in-chief, which is perfectly valid, was to be the guiding spirit and the cheerleader for it all, setting basic policy, basic direction, mm. but not reading every book. Jim would read every issue of Marvel before it went out, make notes, have things fixed, require a change in an ending of an important story. He arguably was right 90% of the time, mm. but it's a very difficult thing to maintain your relationship with the creative people when you're doing that. Right. And some of the people you're talking about didn't leave Marvel because of anything to do with Jim. Jim Starlin had enormous frustration with Marvel over their, the way they approached the change in the Copyright Act in the late 70s mm -hmm. and walked away because he didn't agree with their contracts at that point. Right. You know, that's nothing Jim had any control over. Right. True. And... You know, some of the other people were just ready for a change. Some left because of because of some frustration with their editors. We lost some people because of their frustration with editors at DC too. Uh, mm -hmm. There was certainly a period for a couple of years there where where Jim was having a rough time with the talent pool, though. Right. The people kind of went back and forth because, like you mentioned, the DC implosion. People like Tom DeFalco and Larry Hama moved over to Marvel just because there just wasn't as much work at the time. So I yeah. guess there's various reasons for these shifts in talent. Now, in 81, Saul Harrison leaves DC Comics as president. He left. Was this a planned retirement? Were there other factors in his leaving? Or was he like, you know, I'm just done. I'm just tired. What led he, to him leaving? He was 60 years old. and He'd been there since the beginning of time. Give the guy a break. Let's, let's count it as retirement. Right. Just a pure retirement. So then Jeanette became both publisher and president. And then you became now just I want to get this title right, because I saw in one article is DC's manager of business affairs. But is that now called the chief operating officer? Are these correct titles? I was carrying the title as manager of business affairs. In modern parlance, basically, the, the job I did over the next 20 years was more or less chief operating officer. You know, Jeanette was the chief executive of the company. I was the guy managing the nuts and bolts operations on a day-to-day -day basis. My title changed about four times over the course of that period. Some changes in responsibility, but they were really at the edges. The heart of the job was the same. It was that the company changed as we built it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now things are really kind of shifting. You know, the 80s are beginning and, and there's just the younger people like you and Jeanette are now more pushing things toward the future. So was it Jeanette that promoted you? Did you ask for the position? How did that work? It was absolutely Jeanette. I mean, by that time, I'd been working with her on all the business stuff, the contracts and the rest. She had given me that job a few months before Saul retired. And when Saul retired, I just inherited a lot of responsibilities that he'd been handling directly. Now, Joe Orlando also, he became vice president in 1981 also at the same period of time, right? He got a vice president title, I guess, about a year and a half before I did. But again, he those were changes in title, not changes in job. He'd been running the editorial department since late 76, I think. So then you became VP of operations, what, a year and a half after that then? Something like that. As I say, we changed the title a few times, but... I see. So you would say like a lot of the work was kind of the same with maybe a few additional things, but it's more the titles that were more of the shifts. Okay. And that's fascinating because I guess, like you said, it was kind of a smaller office. So they got to call people something, I guess. I was a kid. They hadn't thought the company was important enough to be worth hiring somebody older, more experienced, with more professional credentials. There was not much of a bench in the comic book industry at the time. I had a good working relationship with Jeanette. She had faith in me. She advocated for me. Mm-hmm. It took a while for the title to catch up to what my responsibilities were. It took a while for the pay to catch up. Right. So, I see. So it's all kind of delayed. I got gotcha. you. But meanwhile, I'm doing the job. Yeah, right. So then the industry, especially DC Comics, was in transition at this time. And the direct market starts to take off. So tell us about you and Jeanette getting creators, writers, artists paid royalties on comics. Is it because of this structural shift that now these things are able to happen? Well, a couple of things come together. The market is changing, as you say, and makes more sense in a comic shop driven market to pay royalties than it did in a newsstand market. The classic newsstand business, the kid was coming to the newsstand. He was too little to know the names of the writers and artists. He was generally too young to have a specific passion for a specific title. He looked at the covers and said, oh, I like Superman. That's Superman and a gorilla. I'll take that one. The perception, fairly or unfairly, was that the creators were fairly generic. In some cases, that was clearly wrong, where you had people who had developed characters, developed properties, or who had a particular take on a book that transformed it. In a lot of cases, it was not an unreasonable proposition. But if you were going to the comic shop world where the kids were a little older and they were coming in with a pull list, with a fanzine, I'll buy anything Frank Miller is doing. Frank certainly was circa 1981, probably the most interesting writer emerging Mm -hmm. in the field at that moment. If you're selling on the basis of a creator's name and particular style, there's a damn good case for paying royalties there. It works that way in most other creative industries. We did some financial maneuvering with the budget that freed up some money to go to the royalties. Jeanette, I, Joe Orlando, Dick Giordano had come in by this point. The four of us sat down and spent some considerable time thinking about, well, if we're going to pay royalties, what should be the relationship between the writers and the artists, penciler and inker? How should this pool work? What can we afford? How should we do it? And we worked out a plan and we were able to get corporate to sign off on it. We Kind of hoped that Marvel wouldn't follow immediately mm-hmm. because that would have given us a great advantage. It was going to be a much more expensive thing for Marvel to follow 
because they had better selling titles than we did. Right, right. More money. But I think to Jim's credit, Jim immediately jumped and said, we're not going to be able to hold our talent if we don't do this. And he got Mike Hobson and Jim Galton to support him and got them to follow suit within, I think, about a month after us. Yeah, I heard it was a month. Yeah. So we didn't get the tremendous win of a competitive advantage in it, but we civilized the business. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, that basically changes the industry quite a bit. Yeah, everything, because money's a big deal. You know, as far as shifting to the direct market marketing licensing, can you tell us about how important was a direct market for the success and the shift of the industry? When Jeanette and I moved to have control over that side of the business, the direct market represents about 10% of our sales, probably a little bit more for Marvel. Within four years after that, it's the largest part of our business. Some of that is because the newsstand continues to shrink, but most of it is because we put in place a number of policies to help grow the direct market. Marvel does some of it as well, but we're able to significantly increase our market share in that mm. period. We go from mm-hmm. about a 10 or 15% market share to about a low, the low 30s, all at Marvel's expense. That's a much healthier position to be in. Yeah. So now you mentioned Frank Miller on Ronin, and he was also obviously did The Dark Knight. So were you part of that negotiation with bringing Frank Miller on board? I had read that Jeanette really wanted him on board. Were you part of that effort there? Well, I mean, Jeanette was the driving force in that she had an enormous appreciation for the creative work he was doing. And mm-hmm. she was a great believer in star creators. And she put a lot of energy into wooing Frank. You know, we will do things we've never done before. Tell us what you want to do. Tell us how you want to do it. I certainly handle a lot of the hands-on negotiation with Frank. Ah. He was a friend, so you know it was an easy process in that sense. Yeah. But we were changing everything. You know, He found the paper in the French albums that he thought comics looked good on. Could we print a comic on that? We'd never used a paper like that. We were just starting to do offset comics. We had to source that. The whole team worked on all of these pieces of it. You know, it's one of the challenges of the way comic fans typically see much of the business is they have a tendency to personalize things. Mm. There has to be a singular person responsible for everything that is good or everything that is evil or anything that happens. These are organizations, and certainly by the time we're talking about DC's growing as a company, they probably were. 40 or 50 people by the time we bring Frank over. Mm-hmm. Lots of folks played important roles in all of that. Bob Rizakis, who was heading production at that time, worked closely with Frank, figuring out how to, how to do the blue line color that we'd never worked with before that made such a big difference on, on Ronan and then on, even more on Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. So tell us about Alan Moore. Were you part of the negotiations of bringing him over and him working on Swamp Thing and then some of the discussions about his Watchmen series, the Charlton characters. Can you tell us about that? I come home to my apartment one day in the 80s to a letter. Hi, you don't know me, but I'm the best comics writer in England. And I'm writing you because I think you're one of the better comic book writers in America. Oh, that's cool. If you ever need somebody to write Martian Manhunter, let me know. I had a lot of friends in England going back to my fanzine days. Uh-huh. I guess Alan had connected with, with me from that. He At that time, he was doing a kind of E.T. knockoff strip called Skiz, yeah. 2000 AD. Not yeah. one of his most fabulous works, but 
you know, certainly very well written. Uh-huh. And Len Wein was also aware of him. Len was the one who actually suggested him for Swamp Thing. Len was editing the book at the time, needed a replacement, I think, from Marty Pasco. There weren't any negotiations. These were, you know, standard form contracts. Right, right. This wasn't creating a character. This was, would you like to write an issue of this book? I, so I wasn't anywhere near any of that. Uh-huh. So DC bought the rights to the Charlton characters, and The Watchmen was originally about to be about them, and then it changed over? Well, as you say, we bought out the old Charlton catalog, figured we'd do something uh-huh. with it. Uh-huh. Dick Giordano was heading editorial. I guess Alan, by that point, was defined to be the best writer in the house or doing mm-hmm. the most interesting work. So Dick said, come up with something to do with this. Mm-hmm. And Alan came up with an idea that basically ended with the characters being unusable afterwards. Mm-hmm. And Dick didn't want to do that. And I said, well, why doesn't he switch it around to make it original characters? We can give him a better deal if that's true. And then we'll have something useful, maybe, and we'll still have the Charlton guys to play with. Mm-hmm. That became The Watchmen. And, you know, there's all this talk about the new show and then the movie earlier and then the Watchmen comics that had come out a few years back. And Alan Moore, I guess his impression, not everyone agrees with him on this as well. Some do. But there's this feeling, is he turning down royalty money from these later projects? And what is his hard feelings about exactly? I think you have to ask Alan what his hard feelings are. I'm, not, I'm certainly not going to speak for Alan. I got you. Okay. You also helped develop the concept of trade paperbacks with the Dark Knight. Is that correct? That sounds more impressive than I think it is. I mean, trade paperbacks are a longstanding publishing format. Uh-huh. The first trade flat paperback formats being used for comics date to Jack Katz's First Kingdom in mm-hmm. 78 by Simon & Schuster, notably unsuccessful. I think what I'm proud of and what I think my team and I can take the credit for okay. is using Dark Knight and Watchmen to launch the trade paperback format into being the standard for America for collecting comics. Mm. We built on, you know, again, not a revolutionary idea. It had been done with Katz's work. Dave Sim had done the black and white Cerebus, what he called phone books. But we really marketed particularly Dark Knight in a uniquely effective way. We did an <coughs> unusual deal with Warner Books where we created a co-edition with them mm. and then a traditional license. So we got, I think it was 70,000 copies out to bookstores, which was just a phenomenal number for anything comics related at that time. It was very successful. The combined success of Dark Knight, Watchmen, and Mouse from Pantheon, mm-hmm. three of which came out in very close proximity, mm-hmm. in that format really... It's what created the, the commercial weight of the graphic novel format in America. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's an industry game changer because now everything has a trade paperback, you know, six issues or, or four issues or whatever. It's the larger part of the business now. Yeah. So in 1985, Crisis is coming out and then John Byrne was obviously big in, in Marvel. Whose idea was it to bring John Byrne over to do a Superman in 85, 86? I think it was John's. We were going to relaunch Superman. A number of creative people pitched. Steve Gerber, I remember, had a pitch in. Carrie Bates and Elliot Magan, I think, jointly had a pitch in. I think Frank may have pitched one. Not sure if I remember Mm -hmm. that correctly. And my role in that, I remember 
being tasked to create the list of what could and couldn't change in the Superman mythology and doing a memo that sadly I did not preserve a copy of. These are the things that have to remain the same. Mm -hmm. And Jeanette made the decision ultimately that John was the, John was the best pitch and that was what she wanted to bet on. Mm -hmm. Were you part of the negotiations with Will Eisner to publish some of his work? I probably was the only person involved in those. Will was someone I respected greatly, knew for many years. That was certainly a passion project for me. Mm -hmm. What was he like? Will created a lot of the vernacular of comics. He was energetic in his old age. You wouldn't know he was in his old age. He was still striving. He was still trying to break new boundaries. He was still aspiring to things that he, in some cases he reached, in some cases he never did. He was a wonderfully talented and decent human being. Well, you've done a lot of things. You know a lot of people like Will Eisner. It's been 50 years doing something. You better get something done. Yeah. And you clearly love it. It sounds like it's driven by obsession and love kind of combined, right? <laughs> I love the form. I mean, it's something I grew up on. If you grow up loving baseball and you get to be a manager of a major league team after being a player, that's cool. I've gotten to write comics. I've gotten to run one of the best teams in the business at one of its best moments, did something to contribute to it being the, one of the best moments. We can all argue about who did what and how much, but the 80s DC will be one of the most memorable periods in the company's history. Yeah, that's my era of it. It's huge. Before I get to the writing, I had a couple of things in relation to what Alex was talking about. I remember during this period being very aware of a, an improvement in how the marketing was going on in terms of the house ads, but also the packages and, and what was happening, the maxi series, things like the King Arthur and Amethyst and all of those. It, it was an exciting time in terms of just opening up the books and seeing what was coming next. Was that something that you guys were doing very deliberately to try to up your game? Well, as a starting point, you tend to have better marketing when you have a marketing department. We launched the first one in comics, I think. Well, there, there you go. That's fascinating. Talk about that a little bit. Oh, I mean, just, you know, after Jeanette became president, we began trying to grow the company. So we added a marketing department. We concentrated on the new customers we had in the direct market. They clearly were older, pickier, if you will. We began to change the line over to take advantage of that. We said, oh, well, you know, if they're older, they might like comics to be printed better. They might like the color to be more vivid. We could be able to do something with that if we changed it. It's a series of dominoes. So some of what you're talking about were changes in marketing. Some of it were changes in production. I mean, I remember being there late at night in Montreal for the press check for Camelot 3000, number one, our first original offset book, as we were learning how to use this new press and carrying it through. I did many fewer press checks in the years following them. Bob Rizakis, who headed production, or Allison Gill, who would take over for him eventually. But I was there for that first one. We added our own licensing department to work with the outside, the sister company that was our licensing agent, to create the first style guides for the characters. We were trying to grow in a hundred different ways. And you know, some of them were things I was very involved in. Some of them were things I was involved in for a moment along the way. Some of them... I, you know, watched happen from a distance. I want to talk about during this period of time, 
basically in the 80s, for almost the entirety of the 80s, you were writing Legion of Superheroes and became a real fan favorite at this point. And Legion of Superheroes had a fan following that was different from any they had ever had before, wouldn't you say? It was different, but it wasn't larger. I mean, remember that in the early 60s, before the Batman show, Legion's outselling Batman. Maybe that's because there's a guy with a red S on his shirt in it. But mm-hmm. this had been a very successful book in the in the early 60s. I mean, I'm very proud of my work on Legion. That run you're talking about was generally DC's second most profitable book during that period after Teen Titans. Mm-hmm. And leaving out the special things like Dark Knight or Ronan, the, the event books, if you will. But as a regular monthly book, it was the number two book in the line. And it's remembered very fondly by people. The Great Darkness saga has been almost continuously in print. I just saw something that they're just about to do a new edition of it in France. 40 years later, almost. I would never have expected any of this stuff to have survived that long. And the the old Legion fans that like the earlier stuff, they embraced it, and you created an entirely new generation, the same people that were reading the Titans and the X-Men. They became fascinated with these characters. So it really was, uh, it was a major moment for the Legion, I think. I think that's fair. What were some of the, besides obviously the Dark Side saga, what were some of the things that you did that you're the proudest of in relation to, to, to that mythos? One was just getting 100 issues sequentially without fill-ins. You know, when I came back on the book, I really felt I had not done it as well as I should have the first time out. And I committed myself to, as long as I was on it, it was going to be an uninterrupted run. I was going to get it done. And I basically managed that. What about characters and uh, death of characters, new characters? Talk about characters that you and choices that you made during this time. The joy of the Legion is that you have so many characters that you can kill a character, marry a character, break up a relationship, have somebody have an affair. I'm proud of the diversity of what we did, which is not at all diverse by the modern standards, but was diverse for the time. The relationship between Shrinking Violet and Lightning Glass was a very early, clear LBGTQ relationship in superhero comics. Did Uh, you get much blowback from that? Nope. I mean, part of it is nothing happens on screen. After, you have to read it into it. It's very clearly there, but it's it's implied rather than screamed out at you. Now, a gay legionnaire. But you know, we, I tried. You know, this stuff where I look back with naivete and choosing the invisible kid to be a legionnaire of color. Kind of, I kick myself now. The invisible man. Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah, really? You should have been a little better read on that, buddy. But nonetheless, he was there. Nonetheless, we introduced genuinely alien characters. I still get a big kick out of Quizlet, who I think is as as alien as anybody who's ever belonged to a superhero group. Um, Love Quizlet. So I think I think we were a little bit ahead of our time. It, obviously, a lot of it was Keith as well. He's one, one of the most fertile imaginations in comics. We had a good, solid run of several years there where he was just bouncing back and forth with me on ideas constantly. Um, but uh, It's also a great science fiction comic. I mean, to be a superhero 
style book, it had more science fiction elements than most things I can think of and sustained and, and really became deeper and deeper as as your involvement with it went through the decade. I think we did some good science fiction. I think we did some good mysteries. First time I met Brad Meltzer, who had grown up reading the book, he started on me saying, I know they say Great Darkness was your big one, but I think Universal Project was a better story. And I actually, I, technically, I agree with him. I think it's a better, it's a certainly a better mystery story. The Sensor Girl mystery, I think, was a really good mystery story. Karen always felt, ultimately, that it was a soap opera book, and I think that's a reasonable way of characterizing it as well. You know, I was very lucky to have her as the editor for mo most of my run. She's an extraordinary editor. Probably. And that's true to the very origins of the of the strip as well, because you had going all the way back to the originals where you'd have Starboy kill somebody and, and be kicked out and Dream Girl. You know, there there were always romances and there was always drama. You know, when you only think of Marvel as being the person doing that, Legion was always a, a uh, to some degree a soap opera book. A little bit, a little bit. Again, the, the size of the cast made it easier to do that. I enjoyed doing that tremendously. and I would have kept writing if I, if I had kept writing, but it had just, it had reached the point my younger, my two older kids were two and four, and the writing was the weekend job, and I wanted to be out on the soccer field with them or driving my daughter to the dance class or whatever. That was more important at that point. Once a crisis took place, there had to be a, a huge challenge, wasn't it? to try to keep Legion with, with all of those changes? Oh, basically just losing the Superman mythology out of the Legion. That really was the only challenge, but which I think hurt the book. But, uh, you know, if you'd hurt Legion a little bit and you improved Superman the way John did, that was absolutely the right decision to be made. So you were happy with the changes that Byrne made? The publisher half of me was incredibly happy. The writer half, half of me was not. But the publisher gets to overrule the writer. Right. There you go. Was that ever a, besides that instance, were there other times where you had that internal conflict between what you wanted as a, a writer and also uh, even going back to being a fan versus what you knew to be the right publishing decision? Sure. You know, I think almost any writer, when the company says, you know, we're doing a giant crossover and you have to have monkeys in, it, in this month, if you're not the writer who came up with the monkey, you're frustrated by it. Okay, I think I can figure out a way to stuff a goddamn monkey in. And sometimes those stories came out fine. And sometimes those stories were pretty lame. Mine or other people's. I don't I don't think mine were any better or any worse than any of the other guys. But the publisher is always really happy because he knows he's going to sell some more copies. And when you were doing an almost 10-year run on, on Legion, were there times where you felt tired and and you kept going or was it always just one idea after another and it was you could have continued running on it in terms of inspiration if you hadn't decided you had too many other responsibilities i can't tell you that i would have succeeded in being equally inspired for another 10 years i don't think if i hadn't had the other aspects of my life i don't think i would have given it up oh that's great and let's talk about giffen's contribution because i know you he was listed as as co-plotter and I know it's not like the two of you sat together and, and, and plotted it out, but you believe that his contribution nevertheless deserved that status. You know, when comics are done collaboratively and it works, it's very hard to draw the boundary line. When you, you have all these debates, Stan versus Jack, Stan versus Steve, and you look back and you try to separate the contribution of the two people, 
I wasn't involved in any of that work, obviously, but I was friendly with all three of them. I can occasionally look at it and say, here's Stan's hand, here's Jack's hand, here's Steve's hand. I see the way they think. But you can't sit there and parse it. And half the time, the people involved can't parse it. There were any number of instances with Keith where I would suggest one thing, he'd suggest another. I'd come back with something that was reacting to what he had suggested to what I had, in reaction to what I had said. And the final thing really wasn't, wasn't mine, wasn't his, was just a thing that lived and breathed of its own. He would occasionally ignore my plot, typed plot for an issue for a page or two, draw a scene that had nothing to do with what I had written there. And I would dialogue it, ignoring his liner notes as something entirely different again. But we were in harmony enough in our basic conceptions of the characters, the basic tonality of the material, that the stuff came out wonderfully. That's a fabulous feeling. Mm-hmm. Just in the interest of time, I'm going to turn it back over to Alex in just a minute. But I do want to ask you about your other collaboration with Steve Ditko in Adventure, and that would be Starman. Did you get to know Steve Ditko very well during this process? Oh, I know Steve going back, obviously before Stalker, when he was doing mystery stories for Joe. So I knew him for 35, 35 years or so of his life, more. Mm. Was he fun to work with? It was always great to see Steve's pages. We didn't have the kind of personal back and forth that I had with some of the artists of my own age. Mm. You know, Steve was a generation older than I was, a little younger than my parents, but much closer to my parents' age than mine. And as is well known, he was a notoriously private person. It was always fun seeing what he did with it. We got along well. So we did about 20 stories together between Stalker, Starman. We did a story for Mike Friedrich's Imagine, one of the Star Reach publications back in the 70s. My first indie work, my first creator-owned work. Incredibly talented man. Do you think it was easier to work with him because you weren't doing straight superheroes, so you weren't getting into some of his ideas of what a, a hero is? in the same way because you were doing science fiction and you were doing fantasy with him? Never thought about that, maybe. I don't know if his problems with Stan were about what a hero is, per se, or what else was in the mix. I think it's pretty pretty distant backseat driving for us to try and figure out what went wrong in that relationship. Sure. I was more thinking of Hawk and Dove, actually, <laughs> and what a, what a hard assignment that must have been to, to work together with. Yeah, I mean, that Steve was not in great health, as I understand it, at that point. So he wasn't able to stick with it for a long time. So I'm, I'm not sure what went on there. There's a lot of interesting ideas in that material. But one of the things that we don't have a window into as fans of the material is what's going on in the lives of the people. And you don't do your best work when your life is going through a challenging period. Mm. With health, family, and every one of the great creators whose work we love had Mishagas. And sometimes that turned into their best work. I didn't know that Will's daughter had died oh, right. of, of leukemia till I think it was 20 years after I first read Contract with God. He was very right. he was very private about it. I still remember sitting at the Princeton Club at dinner with him and Anne and, and hearing the story for the first time and basically my jaw dropping. Sometimes your pain turns into your best work and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's mm. just it's really hard really hard to work when you're not at your best. And I think as I understand it, Hawk and Dove and Creeper came at a time when Steve was having some real health challenges. Right. Okay, Alex, back sure. to you, 1989. 
89. So Time and Warner merged, and DC is part of Warner Brothers as far as the movie studio. Did that change the way DC was processing or putting comics out? Was there more connection with Hollywood people? Because, you know, the Batman movie coming out around this time as well. Tell us about that. You know, we were an odd company in terms of playing 52-card pickup. So should it be in in the publishing division with time? Should it move over to Warner Brothers? The big money was clearly in the movie and in the associated licensing. So the decision was made to move us to the Warner Brothers side. A lot of work for the next few months, changing some payroll systems, changing some salary structures, explaining our business to our new bosses. In general, they were very supportive. We had the good luck of working for some very good people there, as we had had good luck working working for Bill Sarnoff at Warner Publishing for the previous 20 years, I guess, almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. But a lot changed, including the resources that were available to us. I remember the first time my new bosses visited the DC offices and walked through, and it was Sandy Reisenbach, who was the direct guy we were reporting to, and the woman who was heading HR, Adrian Gary, who's doing a lot of work with us on the transition. And the expression on their faces as they walked through was like parents walking through a college dorm. It was just, we pay it, we spend all this money and you're living like this? <laughs> That's we funny. Home, you guys. And suddenly we found ourselves looking for better office space and hiring more people and having more resources available to us. Mm-hmm. That helped tremendously with our growth over the next batch of years. I gotcha. So this is around the time when the titles start to change again, because Jeanette was editor-in-chief as well as president, but then she stepped down as publisher, but then you were executive vice president and publisher, right? Well, we, when we moved over to Warner Brothers, it was a moment to sort of reassess. We looked at what the jobs we were actually doing, mm. and we felt that she was better described as president and editor-in-chief, and I was better described as executive vice president and publisher. Mm, okay. Still basically chief executive and chief operating officer. She was concentrating on getting the movies and TV shows made and setting broad picture editorial policy or running some extraordinary special projects over the next batch of years. She was always great at things like that, things like our landmine comics that were that no one else would in the world would have pulled off. And I was running the nuts and bolts of the business. That also was kind of consistent with the way a lot of the Warner Brothers divisions ran because a I lot see. of them had a top creative person and then a nuts and bolts business person. Mm, that's the division. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That's interesting. And that's why it all kind of happened around that same time then. So we're going to the 90s and Image Comics, Marvel bankruptcy in the 90s. What was your impression of those industry changes and you running the nuts and bolts of the company to keep DC safe from as much of the impact and maintain as much of the market share as possible. What was the overall discussion of that in the 90s? I mean, some of the key key points in that. The founding of Image was something we had expected for a long time. We had looked at the United Artists model, which is basically what that was originally, and actually, we first expected that to happen with uh, Chaikin and Simonson and Starlin, who were hanging out a lot together and certainly were guys who were capable of it. Mm-hmm. We were probably a little naive in thinking it at the time because we hadn't focused on the need for the money to invest in something like that. And it was the money that the image guys had made off some of the terrific speculator successes, X-Men 1, Spider-Man 1 at that time that enabled it to finally happen. The whole speculative boom of the early 90s had some 
great times attached to it and some really challenging times attached to it. The Marvel bankruptcy wasn't so much an issue as much as the Heroes World right. decision, which distribution. The distribution system. And I spent the next six or seven months of my life doing not much else but figure out how to build a distribution system that could work for the next couple of decades. Mm -hmm. Working with a, a team both from within DC and a couple of lawyers from the Warner Brothers side, but DC people like Bruce Bristow, Bob Wayne, Lillian Lasterson made tremendous contributions. And we use the fact that we're playing 52 card pickup to restructure the business in a way that made the growth in the graphic novel much, much more likely to happen. Mm. And really to make sure that the industry survived and thrived. Mm -hmm. We were at some real risk at that point. Yeah. So at the same time in the 90s, 1993 Vertigo, that was a game changer as far as brand creation, creators, a lot of the British people uh, coming in from the 2000 AD world. Karen Berger assisted you as an editor in the late 70s. Talk about her creation of Vertigo and what was your uh, role or impression of that? Well, you know, I hired Karen as a kid fresh out of college. I wasn't, I'm only about a year older, but I was five or six years more experienced at that point, maybe more than that, because I had started so young. Yeah. She was not a comic fan. So when she began to edit, she really tried to create comics that she wanted to read and hoped that they would find an audience. And in fact, they did. And she turned into, I would argue, the best editor of her generation in comics. By the late 80s, early 90s, it was very clear that there was an identifiable flavor to her work that customers were responding to. Going with an imprint approach made sense, and we offered her the opportunity to switch over to an imprint, give up doing the more traditional DC stuff that she'd been doing up until that point. She built it from there. There were a bunch of decisions that I was involved in in that process, whether we were going to put the DC bullet on it, whether we were going to put the DC name on it, how we were going to put it, which names we were going to use. But the heart of what worked was what Karen did. The rest of us get credit for identifying it, for supporting her in the process, occasionally for arguing with her when she hit maybe what was a boundary point that was arguable, but the heart of the success is all hers. So then in 2001, it's kind of a, a big year, 2001-2002 era, you want an ink pot around this time. 9-11 has some impact on just New York in general. And Jeanette left and you became president and publisher. So tell us about the mood of that time. Why did Jeanette leave and you becoming president and publisher? Well, again, I'll, you know, I'll let Jeanette speak for herself. I'm not going to, I'm not going to speak for other people about their lives, uh -huh. but I was given the opportunity to run the company. As I said before, I didn't, I didn't like the title editor in chief. I didn't think, I didn't think it was good for me. And I didn't think I, me carrying it would be very good for the company. I see. And I didn't also didn't want to disassociate myself with what I had accomplished in the previous dozen or so years as publisher. So I used the president and publisher version of the title. Also to show that I was still staying fully connected to the publishing side of the business. When right. Jeanette had really handled the movie and TV creative, and I suddenly was inheriting that, it was not something I was anxious to do or something that I thought went to the heart of my skills or the lifestyle I wanted to have. So it was a way of maybe keeping myself more connected to the comics. Mm. 
Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So to not lose your comic soul in a way, that's pretty interesting. So then did you have any involvement with the Christopher Nolan uh, Batman films, Zack Snyder films, any of those movies? What kind of interaction or, or role did you have in those? Well, so I was Chris's primary contact at DC through both of the first two and a piece of the third were on my watch. By the time Zack got started up, We'd hired Gregory Novick to be our movie and TV guy. So he was probably the primary, but I still interacted with that a reasonable amount. Did you have any involvement also in the animated films, like the Bruce Timm involved stuff? Sure. Yeah, tell us about that. The most important contribution I think I made to the Batman the Animated Series was when Gene McCurdy, who ran that division, called an old friend and said, look, I want to hire Alan Burnett to be the head story guy on this series. We're not getting what we need out of the people who are doing it now. I need help convincing Sandy Reisenbach, who was both our boss, because Alan is incredibly expensive. He was doing a lot of animation writing for Disney. He was just coming off a very lucrative Disney contract. She wanted to lure him over. Probably the most important thing I I did was say, yes, I'm a big fan of his too, dating back to when the three of us had worked together on Super Friends, whatever, five five or six years before. I'll happily, you know, I'll go with you to Sandy. I'll I'll say, Sandy, you should hire this guy, even if he costs more than more than me or Jeannie, he's worth it. I think that's probably the most important thing I did on that series. That's cool. Mm-hmm. You know, from time to time I would sit down with Alan or rarely with Bruce, but occasionally, Paul Dini, Marty Pasco when he was there, and listen to story ideas they had or suggest some story out of the Batman mythos that I remembered or the the Superman mythos. But most of the time, you know, they're doing it. That's their gig. Mm-hmm. I'm kibitzing at the edges. <laughs> I have one more question before Jim talks about the last section is 2009. Okay, so DC Comics goes under the auspices of DC Entertainment. First, what's the difference of that entity? What are the details of you stepping down as president and then becoming contributing editor and overall consultant? Again, I'll leave it to DC to describe why they became DC Entertainment. Okay. Um, you know, the company had made a decision which evolved over a period of time that they were ultimately going to move it to California and integrate it more closely with the movie business. Mm. I had no desire to be more closely integrated with the movie business, and I wasn't going to uproot my life and move to California. And I had the economic freedom, thanks to how well they had treated me over the years, to not have to worry about it. So I had said to them, this is not a path that I want to go. Mm. Time comes that you want to do that. You know, be glad to help, be glad to work through any kind of transition you want, but I ain't going. Mm. And 2009, they said, the time's come. We feel this is the right thing to do with the company. God bless you. It's your toy. Let me know how I can help. Mm. They set me up as a writer for a few years, did a bunch of writing for them in the following years. They continue to treat me very nicely. I can continue to do the odd project for them, reprint collections every now and then, writing every now and then. Telling them where I buried bodies every now and then. (laughs) And all this potential homicide, yeah. So Jim's going to continue, but I want to just throw out one more observation. Is It's interesting because you worked with really strong women in your time. Jeanette Kahn and Karen Berger, very creative, strong women. And you also write about them with Huntress and Power Girl. And it's just a really cool theme I've noticed from you. So I just want you to know I'm a big fan of yours. Thank you. When you talk about strong women, the company had a lot of strong women executives. Chantal Dolnice, who headed international for many years, business affairs for a number of years, one of the smartest people I ever worked with, terrific publishing person, Cheryl Rubin, who ran our licensing department for any number of years, Terry Cunningham, who ran editorial administration. We had a lot of, a lot of strong women. Part of that was because 
Jeanette was sort of a flag flying, right? If you go back to the 1970s, women executives were relatively rare. And the fact that we had a woman leader said, hey, you can come here. Cheryl's predecessor, Mary Mobus Yedlin, before her, was an early strong woman executive hire in the company. I'm, mm, awesome. I'm, I'm proud to say that, generally speaking, when I would run the numbers to test, our payroll was pretty much 50-50 by gender. Mm. Some of that was obviously helped by Jeanette being a significant weight on that side of the scale, but she was not sufficient to do it, do it all by herself. We had, we had women in a lot of serious positions for a long time, and that was an important part of the company's success. We weren't as diverse as I would hope a company could be, ultimately, but we were more diverse than a lot of companies at our time, and we certainly worked at it. Jim? All right. Going way back in time in terms of that, I'm just curious, was Dorothy Wolfolk gone by the time you came, were hanging around the hallways? I met Dorothy a couple of times in the hall when I was doing the fanzine. I don't think we ever had a really long conversation. I knew her ex, Bill Wolfolk, the writer, better in later years. Got to meet her daughter, who was a great prose novelist in her own right. Because the impression I got was that ultimately, when she was doing Lois Lane and, and, and some of those books when she was editing, that it maybe wasn't the best environment or the easiest environment for a woman to, to work in. Although they, they made an effort by putting her there, but that she wasn't always treated perfectly. I, I wondered if you would, if you had any thoughts on that. You know, I don't, rem I mean, I was a kid. I probably wouldn't have noticed. Yeah. But I don't remember any stories about Dorothy, particularly feeling like she wasn't being treated well because she was a woman. I think it was a really difficult environment because comics weren't doing well. And in particular, the comics she was predominantly in charge of, the romance comics, were dying for broad cultural reasons that I don't think any any editor, no matter how brilliant, could have resolved. You know, the other media were beginning to depict romance and sexuality in very direct and vivid forms. And I think there was universal wisdom that if the comics tried that with the drawn image We'd be on the evening news every night with, oh, my God, they're making look at the dirty pictures they're showing the children. Sure. And I think the romance comics were caught between a need to modernize and an impossibility of modernizing. And whether Dorothy could have done that creatively or not, I don't have an opinion on. But I think it was an almost impossible task. Okay. In keeping about uh, diversity, we talked about Vertigo, but we did not talk about Milestone, which unfortunately did not have the same level of success. But my understanding is it is something you were proud of to be a part of. Do you want to talk about that for a couple minutes? I'm incredibly proud of Milestone and the work the guys did. It did not succeed commercially. In the long run, it gave the company the character Static, who is extraordinarily fondly remembered by a generation of kids that grew up on the animation. So maybe it won in the long run. What the guys were trying to do required superhuman effort. And the original founders had, I have to say, insane amounts of courage of their convictions to put their lives in that way. And they did some phenomenal creative work, and it didn't work. There's no way of telling at two extremes whether it didn't work because a certain number of people weren't interested in buying characters of color at that point, or... At the other extreme, the unique style of coloring they picked to use 
because they wanted to try to find a way to do people of all different shades in an era just before computer coloring came online as a regular way to do that was unappealing to people or anything in between. Unfortunately, comics don't generate enough revenue to support the kind of market research budget where you can really find out why you succeed or why you fail most of the time. Another thing I wanted to ask you about was the weekly series 52. That seemed like a relatively daring project to to put out and to actually pull off, and you guys did it spectacularly. Were you hesitant to go forward with that, or or were you confident it was going to work? It's probably one of the rare instances where I'm at fault for an editorial project. Dan came up, I guess Dan and Jeff, Dan liked to make presentations on easels at that point, I, and you know sketched out this whole presentation for this crisis series he was doing, and then said, and then we're going to jump ahead a year. There are a bunch of good ideas in it. There are a bunch of things I didn't quite agree with. But, you know, that's the usual. It's his job, not mine. But I really reacted negatively to the idea of jumping ahead a year. And I said, look, that's been done. And it doesn't usually pay off. If you're going to do it, you should do something new. And at that point, 24 was a fairly recent phenomenon on television. And I threw out the idea of, if you're going to jump ahead a year, Maybe do something that tells the story of that year in sort of real time. Maybe do something like 52 weeks. And he grabbed the easel and ran out of the office and said, got it. Let me figure it out. And it was one of the first times, maybe the first time, that the sort of writer's room approach that was very common in television already was brought to comics. And Dan came up with this whole writer's room based theory of working with Jeff and Grant and Keith and was it Wade who was the other one on it? Yeah. Morrison was around too, wasn't he? Yeah, I said Grant. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. He got that group together and he figured out a way to make that work in a system that had not previously. And that's that's really to his credit. You know, I didn't build any of that or touch any of that. And boy, those covers were something too. We had a lot of talented people at DC. I mean they still do. I just you know, I'm just speaking for my time. I incredibly incredibly proud of the team we had. Yeah, we've been lucky enough to talk to people like Tim Sale and Mark Giarello, and they're just, it's amazing the talent that you guys had. Yep. Can we talk about New 52 for just a minute? Do you have thoughts on that? Not my job, Chief. <laughs> okay. That's their turn. All right. I will, uh, I'll leave that alone. Let's talk about uh, the, the the comics that you did after 2009. It seems like, although they say you can't go home again, you you went home on a couple of projects. You did a Huntress book, and you returned to the Legion of Superheroes. Yeah, you know, I don't look at some of that stuff as being my best. It's certainly not my best Legion run. Many factors, some of it being just I was rusty after 20 years of not writing on a regular basis. Some of it, the changes in the direction that the line was going through at the time. And you were saying that some of that wasn't, you were a little rusty. You got pretty good, actually very good notices for um, when you did the different Dr. Fate, though, didn't you? Yeah, I was really happy the New York Public Library put on some list of best YA graphic novels for the, fir- the first one. I mean, Sonny Liu is, again, an extraordinary person to collaborate with. So that was great fun. It's a collaborative medium. When it's good, it's one and one equals three. Mm-hmm. I want to do your non-DC stuff in in a minute, but I I wanted to cover a couple of other... You have some other roles besides 
executive and and writer, there's a historian aspect to you because you did do the DC history book, correct? Did the DC history book, and I did the uh, Will Eisner book with Abrams. Yes, both both of those. Are you hoping to do some other other books like that? Other more historical projects? I have one book on popular culture history that I want to do that I haven't gotten off my ass to really put put together, but I'm I'm hoping to put time in on that next year. We'll see. And anything you want to say about the the other the DC book and the Eisner book? Please buy them. <laughs> Go out and buy it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean the 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 DC book has gone through I think eleven different forms and editions with Tasha and I'm it was a terrific experience. Still out there, still available. Very proud of it. Won my Eisner for it. The Eisner book, on the other hand, came out from Abrams and didn't do any gigantic numbers. It probably sold a little better than my fanzine did towards the mm. end of my fanzine days. Okay. Didn't, reach, <laughs> didn't reach a really wide audience. And I think it was a good book. I think it's his, the history of the graphic novel in it is important history and accurate. And uh, Abrams has a warehouse full of them. So mm, uh, I got you. So everyone go online and buy one, make a statement. Think about it anyway. I have another question, too, while it's while it's in my head. Um, I saw you at a, a San Diego panel talking about Jules Pfeiffer. Is, is Pfeiffer somebody you have a, a um, longstanding relationship with? Well, I met Jules through doing the Eisner book and we became friends from that because he was, of course, Will's assistant at the very beginning of his career. Mm. And we discovered that we had many friends in common who we both knew at the beginning of our careers, him at the beginning of the other people's careers, me at the end of their careers, right. but Johnny Craig and, you know, all the people who'd been through the Eisner studio in those years, that was kind of a hoot. I, I adored Jules. I respect him enormously. And I hope to God I'm doing something a tenth as creative in my eighties. It's pretty amazing what he's doing in the past, his latest projects, the, the graphic novels he's doing. But let's talk about your academic career post-DC. You've taught at Columbia, you taught it at uh, Princeton, you've, you taught at uh, Pace, all with different aspects. Can you just talk about well, when I, when what I got, you're getting from that? When I got up from the desk, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? I'm economically free to do whatever I want. So... I was very lucky in the teachers I had. I'm one of Frank McCourt's students, for those of you who know that name. The only high school English teacher ever to win a Pulitzer later in his life, for Angela's Ashes. And he was just, just one of the great teachers I've had, you know, mm-hmm. including people like Joe and Jeanette. So I said, you know what? Teaching would be fun. I, it's, it's a great thing. I'm a dropout, so it's a challenging thing to get in. But I sent letters off to about a half dozen schools that either had writing programs or publishing programs said, hi, kind of weird, don't have the usual qualifications, but uh, I've done all this stuff with my life. Can you use me? And uh, inveigled my way into a number of different schools. And it's about half of what I do these days. Where are you currently teaching? Pace has a master's in publishing program. I do a course a term there, either the business of comics and graphic novels or transmedia and the future of publishing. Pace undergraduate, I teach writing the graphic novel one term and graphic novel as lit the other term. Little Liberal Arts College named Manhattanville up in Westchester. I do a couple of sections of writing for the media there. 
And every couple of years, Columbia lets me co-teach the American graphic novel with one of their real professors. Oh, that's great. Do you know Karen Green? I do very well. She's great. She is terrific. And we should have her at some point, Alex. By the yeah. Way. Besides that, you've done some post-DC work, specifically having moved from Brooklyn as a child. And I assume you moved where you were actually living in Manhattan during all of this, the DC period. Is that right? Not all of it. I was in Manhattan at the beginning of my DC career. And then when the kids came along, I was up in Chappaqua in the New York suburbs. I see. You returned to Brooklyn, at least in terms of uh, narratively for Dark Horse after that with uh, Brooklyn Blood, correct? Yeah. Well, and actually for Dr. Fate as well, which I set in Brooklyn. Oh, Uh, that's right. You know, Brooklyn is cool again, which it was not in any of the years I was in there. So it's nothing to do with me. Um, When my daughter moved to Brooklyn after college, it was, we worked so hard to get out of Brooklyn. Why are you moving there? It's not the same place, Dad. And she's absolutely right. It's really an amazing multicultural place now. And great setting for a story. And let's talk about, you have a new book that's coming out in just a few weeks, correct? Right before Christmas, I think December 18th, the first issue of The Visitor from Valiant, which is, again, an interesting mixture of a mystery story, a science fiction story, and the atmospherics of a superhero story. How did that come about that you were going to do something for for Valiant? You'd, You'd had no previous relationship, had you? No, I mean, I've paid some attention to the Valiant books when they were first coming out because I was interested to see what Jim was doing. And you know, Jim was there, Bob Layton, who I'd worked with and been friendly with, Don Perlin, who is an old family friend. So I, I paid some attention at the beginning, but hadn't paid much attention since. Fred Pierce, who's the publisher there these days, I've known since his first day at Valiant and then much better in his days at Wizard and the Wizard conventions. We've stayed friendly. And Fred just said, hey, are you free to do writing for other people? Do you want to do anything for us? I said, sure. He said, we've got a couple old names. Maybe you can take one of them and do something interesting with it. And he gave me some copies. And I thought the visitor name was a good name. And I thought there were some elements in that that I could play with and do a very different take on. And uh, went from there. Got very lucky in the artist who's, who they found for a young woman named MJ Kim, who was nominated for a Russ Manning Award last year, this year. And she's really, you watch her grow and come into her own is really a phenomenal artist on the series. Mm. And is this, is this going to be an ongoing series or is it a set, a set story? It's a six issue series. I think if it does well, Valiant in their usual pattern may come back and ask to do another one at mm. some future point. It's structured for the six issues. Cool. Anything else you want to say about The Visitor? We're, we're excited about it. I'm looking forward to it. Well, as we were talking earlier, lots of comic shops don't stock the secondary brands. So if you like my work and you've been interested in it from over the years for DC and your comic shop doesn't normally stock Valiant, please ask them to special order it. If your comic shop does stock Valiant, it would be great if you put it on your pull and hold list to, to taste it. I mm-hmm. think from Valiant's point of view, the best reason to have me writing for them is that Maybe it'll bring some people to reading their books who don't usually. Right. And it would be wonderful if that worked. Well, please, please go on Comic Book Historian's uh, Facebook group and, and, and tell us when each issue is coming out. That's what uh, 
Howard Chaykin does each time he has uh, something coming out. Mm-hmm. How is a more energetic marker than I am, unfortunately? <laughs> unfortunately for him, unfortunately for me. He seems to have a lot of energy. Uh, God bless. Always did. And then I just have two like guilty pleasure questions I want to ask you is whether or not you ever wrote a story for Marvel. Is there any story or any character you would like to have written or would get to write? As you said earlier, I love the Avengers. I, it's the book I broke apart studying to figure out how to do all-star comics. Oh, cool. Analyzing Roy's run on that. Boy, um, that was nice with Bushima and with George Klein doing the, the inking on that, those early books. Those were beautiful. Yeah. I'd get a kick out of getting a chance to do an Avengers story one time. Who knows? Okay. Uh, I, I, that'd be great. And well, then you, you talked about Poker Night. I'm just curious, and you named the people that were playing. Can you tell us who were the good poker players and who were the bad <laughs> poker players? You know, I don't think we had anyone who was a notoriously bad poker player, except the one time Paul Kupperberg sat in and folded a Royal Flush <laughs> and realized it qualified and jacks are better. <laughs> That's pretty bad. <laughs> I, I collected those cards and held them hostage. And I think that's ultimately gave them back to him as a wedding present. <laughs> that's funny um, some years later it was a nickel and dime game not a lot of money floating at floating at the table i've played in poker games with vastly more serious players but it was a great bunch of people we were all interested in what comics were interested in what comics could be talking about the field you know you saw everything from marv's pages for tomb of dracula back in the early days Gene's pencils, which looked so amazing, looked wonderful after Tom Palmer, too. But Gene's one of the artists whose work is most unique in the pencil form of that generation, I think. Yeah, right. I think it was a very formative experience for a lot of us. And it wasn't like we recruited the table for we are going to run the world. But I guess we had four Marvel editors in chief, Len, Marv, Jim, Tom DeFalco. Me from the DC side, Denny, who although not e- not ever editor in chief anywhere, certainly was the the dominant editor and writer on Batman for decades, and one of the industry legends, and you know bunches of talented yeomen, and occasionally this talented person who turned out to be a superstar like Frank, and you know everybody kicked their nickels and dimes in and ate their pretzels. So I've been on the board of Boom for several oh. years now. You know it's board work, so I'm not involved directly in the creation of the comics, but Every now and then I'm doing something helpful to keep keep them going effectively. And I do a couple of charitable boards, the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, which I've been on for over a decade, and Clarion Foundation, which runs the Clarion Science Fiction Workshops, which have been around for about 40 years. I've only been on that board for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. But I think to give a plug for Boom, again, like Valiant, there's a lot of comic shops that aren't checking out the Boom projects and offering them. And they got a bunch of stuff that's worth reading. So I would recommend that highly to people. And the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, I think, continues to do really important work. We're seeing comics challenged very frequently now in classrooms and in libraries. They're very frequently banned books, and it's often some of the best material. Alison Bechtel's Fun Home gets challenged constantly. And the, the Legal Defense Fund is really on the forefront of fighting those battles to make sure people have access to the work. So... If you spend your, I don't know what it is to join, whether it's 10 bucks at a San Diego cocktail party or 100 bucks for a membership, but if you're kicking in a couple of bucks to the Legal Defense Fund, 
I would argue that that's money going back to the comic book business in a very effective way. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's where me and Jim first met years ago was at the CBLDF a meeting in San Diego Comic-Con. Ah, one of the Westgate parties. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. And I, I keep up my membership every year. Thank you, sir. Thank you to everyone who does. It's a good cause. And you also received the Bob Clampett Humanitarian Award as well in 2008. Uh, there's a lot of aspects to you. I've gotten the Bob Clampett. I've gotten the Dick Giordano Humanitarian Award from uh, Hero Initiative. I got the Industry Appreciation Award from Comics Pro the first year that they put that in place almost a decade ago. I got a shelf of stuff I'm really proud of. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Driven by love, obsession, determination, hard work, and good taste, might I add. Well, and outlasting everybody else. Hang around for, for almost 50 years and, you know, they'll give you something to make you go away. <laughs> um, I was very honored to get the get inducted into the Eisner Hall of Fame this year at San Diego. But that also is sort of like, all right, already, are you done? We're putting, you, we're putting the audio animatronic of you in there. You don't need to do anything more. Go home. <laughs> <laughs> I want to keep doing stuff as long as I can. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, this is Alex Grand with Jim Thompson at the Comic Book Historians Podcast. We are really excited about our interview uh, with Paul Levitz, who has many more projects in front of him, but also has a strong legacy behind him. And Paul, it's really interesting in that you approach comics from a writer, from a corporate standpoint, from an editing standpoint, from a fanzine standpoint. You're a really unique, multifaceted individual, and we're really thankful that you spent some time with us today. My pleasure. Mm-hmm. You know, I've done everything that I could figure out how to do. I can't draw. I probably would have tried that at some point. But, you know, tried my hand at coloring. I've done an odd lettering correction here or there. But you do what you can do. I had one student in an MFA program who had a bit of wisdom that I love to pass along to my current students. She said, I'm a computer jock. I could work in any kind of industry. But I love my job. She runs the ticketing computers for one of the major Broadway houses. And she says, what I love about the job is every day when I go into work, they're not talking about whether the Mets or Yankees are going to be in the World Series. They're talking about who's going to replace Nathan Lane in the play he's in. I think getting to be in a business that you love, no matter what role you play in it, is a great path in life. And I was lucky enough to get into a business I love, been lucky enough to hang around in it. And I just keep trying for different roles that make sense for my life at that moment and where I can contribute something. <laughs>